Father, I imagine for someone like you to speak, Lord, the holy hush that must exist in heaven as people await your word. And tonight, Lord, it's with that same humility and same awe that we come to you. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have of having the eternal word of God instruct, speak, and guide us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and that your spirit would speak. Lord, we believe in your love. We believe, Lord, that you've called us your sons and daughters. And we believe that as you said, that you would give us all things we need for life and godliness. That tonight, Lord, we would have a little bit more of that. And so use this chapter, this time, and let your spirit speak to our hearts as we turn our full attention to you. So bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Judges chapter 14 tonight. It's a critical time in Israel's history. It's a time of transition. They are moving as a nation from a time of chaos to a time of order. The transition between the judges and the kings serves as that. It's a time of self-rule where everyone does what's right in their own eyes to a time of central rule, where God will raise up a king, and God will be with that king, and he will kind of be a centerpiece that will keep the nation centered on God. It's that time of judges to the kings. Now, as we are in this chapter, we are looking at the final of 13 judges that have been highlighted for us, raised up by God throughout uh, this season of Israel's existence. It's an interesting character that we study, this man, Samson. Unique in so many ways, not just among the judges, but also among all of those that served God throughout the pages of Scripture, this man, Samson. The most notable of his unique characteristics is the fact that he was called to be a Nazarite. Dedicated to God from birth, for this whole span of his life, he was to refrain from anything from the vine, he wasn't to drink alcohol, he wasn't to ever cut his hair, and he was never to be near a carcass special instruction given by God to his parents, and something that he would fail in, certainly, but it was something that God called him to. We see that he was raised in a godly home. His parents were believers, and his whole life is somewhat ensconced in the supernatural. We see this man doing things that no one else has ever done or ever would do after him, and he certainly is a study in the power of God But even more than that, a study in the failure of man. And where we left off with him in chapter 13 is that he's grown now and the Spirit of God has begun to move upon his life by way of preparing him for the thing that God is going to do with him. Now, any time that God has a work for someone to do, there is always a season of preparation where God fits the man or the woman for that work and equips them with everything that they need so they are successful in it and they don't fail. We, We see that gifts, that talents, that calling, that abilities, vision, that all of those things are good, but those things can only take you so far. There is a season of preparation that is absolutely necessary to learn the deeper things of God, to experience Him in a relationship with Him. To be rooted and grounded in God in such a way as that you've cultivated the fruit of the Spirit. And you've learned to hear His voice. And there's some, uh, some equipping that goes beyond just the bare gifting. You would be hard pressed to find in Scripture anyone that's raised up quickly by God that doesn't ultimately self 
self-destruct. We've seen it in Gideon and Jephthah as judges earlier on in this book. Men that were raised up quickly, but weren't able to handle the load of responsibility in a spiritually mature fashion, and thus their lives ended uh, more or less in destruction. We see it later on with King Saul, the first of Israel's kings. Raised up quickly, never prepared, never tempered, never spending time in the furnace of affliction, and thus not able to handle the the weight of that responsibility, and ultimately he self-destructs. We see it with many uh, of the other kings. We see it with Solomon, a man who didn't go through the, the pain and the anguish of David, his father. And thus once the glory of that kingdom comes to him, he's not able to handle it. And we see Solomon later in life self-destruct. We see it with Saul of Tarsus in the New Testament, who would ultimately become the Apostle Paul, that when he first got saved, there was a fire in him, there was a gifting in him, but he didn't know how to handle it. And so he went into Jerusalem, and twice in the first span of his Christianity, they sought to take his life from him until he could be separated unto God for a season. Going into the Arabian wilderness and spending time in the desert, alone with God, being established in a relationship with God. And then spending time in Tarsus, just working, just being a Christian, not Paul the Apostle, but Saul the tent maker, and just growing in God, and not being used necessarily in a mighty way but being prepared for the time when God would ultimately uh, use him in such an incredible way. You know, we see it uh, with others in the New Testament, but now you contrast that with those that were prepared, those whom God was able to get alone and cultivate in them a relationship with himself, and you see a vastly different story. You see Abraham, who for 25 years did nothing but build altars and move tents, seeing nothing of the promises of God being fulfilled in his life, but yet growing in his relationship with God, growing in his love for God. We see it with Jacob, who went out with nothing. He laid his head upon a pillow and met the Lord there. And then for 20 years, we see him toiling and struggling, waiting to see what God would do in his life. And there's no visible fruit. He he didn't become the father of many nations. But he became one whose father was God, and he knew his God. He was prepared by him. We see Joseph, the son of Jacob, who would become the prime minister of Egypt, a type of the savior of the world as he would save them in a time of famine. But for 13 years, he went from being a slave in Potiphar's house to being a prisoner there in Egypt, to being totally cast off and and rejected by men, but yet being established in his relationship with God so that when the time would come that God would use him, he would be prepared for that. And then on it goes. We see it with Moses and with Joshua and with Samuel and with David and with the apostles and with Timothy. We see that there was a time of preparation where the fruit of the Spirit and a relationship with God was cultivated in the soul, which became the foundation for fruitful, lasting ministry that went on and on and on. And what we see with this man Samson is that God had intended for Samson to be prepared and readied, but that Samson wanted nothing to do with it. That the beating that would come as God would move him from times at the camp of Dan, that he didn't want to endure that. He was too gifted for it. He was smarter than anyone else in the past or that ever would be in the future. And so that time to him seemed foolish, and he was ready to get moving. And so uh, we see him quitting that time um, because he felt he didn't need it. And here's what we see with Samson. We see four times throughout his ministry, it says that the Spirit of God came upon him. But never once do we see the Spirit of God working within him. He was a man who had all of the outward trimmings of being separated unto God, but there was no inward relationship with God, and that became the foundation for his great fall. 
um, that, that, that we will see. Um, Samson is a man who settled for one-seventh of what he could have had. When you read Isaiah chapter 11, and it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people, there are seven things that God does. It says that he gives us the spirit of the Lord, that is, he makes us like the Lord. And the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, which is strength, and then of the fear of the Lord, the sevenfold working of the spirit. What we see in Samson is that he had one-seventh of what God wanted to do in him. He had might. And he had might in a way that no one ever had or ever would have again. But he had absolutely nothing of anything else that God seeks to provide and give to his people who seek to follow and cultivate him. And here's the great principle that we learn from Samson's life as we continue. Is that what God wants to do within our lives is always greater than the work that he wants to do through our lives. He has something that he wants to do with us to bless us. But infinitely more important to him than that is the fact that we have a relationship with him. He's always more interested in the man or the woman than he is in the mission. And so Samson's saga becomes for us an antiquated version of a story that we see played out all too often in the modern era. And that is we see someone that has great potential, a holy calling, and a promising future, but they fall to the wayside. So how does that happen? How does it happen that someone who's gifted and called and separated even by God from birth, how is it that they fall by the wayside and never realize the potential of what God had? And in chapter 14, we find the answer to that question. We see Samson's slide. Now, I told you last week that Samson's story separates into four chapters. Chapter 13 is the preparation. Chapter 14 is the backsliding. Chapter 15 is the work that God still does through him. And then chapter 16 is his tragic ending. And so tonight we see the backslidden man, Samson. But here's what we get. We get to see what happens to a person that causes them to slide away from the Lord. And the amazing thing is that as we look at this chapter, you almost get the sense that God was thinking about Christians in today's world when he put this story in his word before us. Because what happened to Samson is the same thing that does happen all too often. And certainly it's something that can happen to any one of us. So what caused Samson to slide? I want to read the first 10 verses of this chapter, chapter 14. And then we're going to go back and pull five steps in Samson's backsliding out of it. So look with me at verse 1, would you? It says, Now Samson went down to Timnah, And he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and he told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman. That's the first words of Samson in the Bible. In Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people? that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. 
Now, he's not supposed to be in a vineyard, if you recall from the Nazarite vow. Now, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Now, this would probably be a full year after the initial arrangements were made. That was a typical betrothal time. So this one, uh, this span where it says after some time is a year later, and he turns aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands, and he went along eating. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. He's not supposed to be touching the carcass of a lion. It was part of the Nazarite vow violated by Samson. And then in verse 10, it says, So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And so we see Samson now, as he's coming of age, and he's beginning to move out on his own, and we're beginning to see the things that happen. So what does Samson show to us here, that we can see in his life in these early stages, that were the marks or the steps of his backslidings? And believe me, they're the same things that we deal with here. The first thing that you notice right off the bat is he was a man of unbridled lust. Three times in the first three verses... It talks about his, the depth of his relationship with this Philistine woman. It says that he saw her. That he saw this woman. And down in verse 3, it says that he said to his father, he said, get her for me because she pleases me well. The phrase in the Hebrew is that she is right in my eyes. That's going to become the defining verse for the book of Judges in its totality. The people doing what's right in their own eyes. And What does Samson say? And what does Samson see? He sees a woman, she's pleasing to his eyes, and so he desires to have her. This is what we call lust at first sight. Now this is absolutely, without any controversy, outside of the will of God. There is never a time anywhere in Scripture where God condones the marriage of an unbeliever with a believer. It was strictly forbidden by Moses in the law that when they would come into the land... They were not to intermarry with the people of the land. It was said over and over and over again, and then reiterated by Joshua. But we see Samson here has no regard at all for the revealed, written word of God. He's going to do what he wants to do. When we come into the New Testament, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul say that we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He says, what fellowship does light have with darkness, or does Christ have with Belial, that is, with demons? And so we're not to be in that kind of a relationship covenant as the people of God with someone who is not a person of God. You're building on a completely different foundation and according to a completely different blueprint. And so God throughout the whole Bible says that it is not to happen that way. The Bible warns us about the lust of the eyes. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle John writes and he says, Love not the world, 
neither the things that are in the world. For everything that is in the world, you know, or to love the world is not to love the Father. And then he says, it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And he says, those things are not of the Father, but those things are of the world. Now you can take every sin that a man can commit, every form of uncleanness or idolatry or any other law-breaking thing, and you can file it under one of those three categories, either the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. It's what God, I'm sorry, it's what Satan used when he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden. He showed her the tree. He lied to her and deceived her about what it was and what it was to do and what God's intent was in forbidding her to have it. And the Bible says very clearly there, it says that when she saw that it was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and desirous to make one wise, it says that she took and she ate of the fruit of the tree. A little bit later on, we see Abraham and his nephew Lot, and they're not able to stay together any longer because there's too many servants and too many cattle. And so God says to Lot, he says, hey, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. You choose, but we have to separate. And it says that Lot looked towards Sodom, and he beheld all the plain of Sodom, that it was well watered like the garden of the Lord. And then it says that he pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then ultimately he became a citizen in Sodom, and we find him in the gate of Sodom, which was the place of government. Where did it begin? It began with his eyes. He looked towards Sodom. And the Bible warns us about the lust of the eyes, of letting things captivate and have an emotional grip upon us based upon what we see, what we let in through the eye gate. Because once we let something in through the eye gate, ultimately it's going to grab a hold of our heart, and whatever has our heart is where our feet are going to take us. And we see it here with Samson all too clearly, way outside of the will of God, but unreasonable and unwilling uh, to hear because he wants to do it. Now, every single one of us has fleshly and sinful tendencies. There's not one of us that here can say, no, I'm completely free, I'm completely pure, there's, there's no sin in me whatsoever, and nothing tempts me. I am completely immune to all forms of temptation. No, we all can be tempted. And that temptation can hit us through the lust of our eyes, through the lust of our flesh, and through the pride of life. And part of God's preparation, or we could call it our desert experience, or the beating of the clay, to borrow from last week's illustration, for God to teach us how to deal with those temptations. Because no matter how long you walk with the Lord, whether it's five minutes or five years or 50, those sinful tendencies are always going to be in you. And it's up to us to learn how to deal with those things. And in that time of preparation, as we you know, experience the chastisement of God, as we see what makes us fall and fail, we gain that experience and we learn where those things lead so that when we come into a place of fruitfulness where the stakes are higher, we don't find ourselves falling in a way that's going to destroy and uproot what God has done in our lives. And so important is it for us that we learn how to deal with the temptations that come through our eyes and through our flesh and through our tendency of pride. But we see with Samson, not so. It was unbridled lust. The next thing that we see with him is that he ignored the warnings. His second step in backsliding was that he ignored the warnings. The Bible says that God will always be faithful, that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle, but he will, with any temptation that comes, also provide a way to escape that you would be able to bear it. 
And Samson gets two warnings in this passage. One comes from the people close to him, and then the other one comes from God directly. His parents said to him, Samson, is there not a woman of the daughter of our people that you could marry, that you have to go to an uncircumcised Philistine? And Samson, in obstinate stubbornness, defies his parents' word, and he says, no, this woman is the one I want, therefore get her for me. I found that that is a very real way that God warns people. He will use the people that love you. No one loves a person the way their parents love them. We see that with Samson, his parents were way more than just his parents. They were also his pastors. They had raised him in the things of God. They were his stability. They were his education. They were his pillars, his rock, the ones that discipled him and raised him up, that explained to him what the vow was all about. And now in sincere concern for the direction that he's going, they issue a warning. They say, Samson, this is not the right thing. But he blows right through it. How often do we see Christians doing that same thing? How often do we ourselves do it? Is that someone who sincerely loves us in the Lord will come to us and question some of the decisions that we're making. Ask us about the choices. Hey, are you doing the right thing right now in what you're doing? And we say, yeah, yeah, God told me to. I'm, I got this. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm all good. And we kind of blow off the warning from those that love us and are sincerely concerned for our well-being. Samson blows through that one. And so God sends a second roadblock because he's faithful. We find Samson in a vineyard, a place that he's not supposed to be. He's a Nazarite. He's separated to God. He shouldn't be in that place. He's separated from his parents. He's all alone, and he wanders into this vineyard, and it says, Behold, a lion met him in the way. A great picture. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter writes, and he says that our adversary, Satan, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And here we see Samson in picture form coming face to face with the devil while he's walking in a way and in a place that he should not be at all. And what do we see happen there? We see a miraculous deliverance. God sends the lion. He allows it to happen. Samson has a close call. Now, think about for one second the stakes here. Because first of all, if Samson were to be mauled by this lion, and, and he you know, dies in this attack as the, as the lion comes uh, upon him, first of all, he loses his life and all bets are off. Everything is over at that point. He loses his life. But let's say for a minute he just gets mauled. Or let's say that he does die, but he dies in a vineyard. Here's what happens. Is that everyone that knows him finds out that he was a hypocrite. He was supposed to be a Nazarite. We heard the story of his miraculous birth, how the angel came to his parents. We've seen his long hair and the, 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 the evidence of God's spirit in his life. And we've been watching this man. And here all this time, look, he's been hanging out in a vineyard, violating his vow. And now it's exposed. All of us can see it. I don't know about you, but I know I can relate to that. I know a lot of people that are called by the Lord can relate to that. They backslide a little bit and they go somewhere and they get involved in some things that they shouldn't be involved in. And there's a close call. They come face to face with Satan and they almost get caught. But God in his mercy intervenes like he did here with Samson. The spirit of God comes upon him and he tears the lion in half. And he gets out of it unscathed. No one finds out what he did. But he knew in his heart. That he had the, the fast pumping of his heart as he knew he was doing something he wasn't supposed to do. And he gets out of the situation. And God delivers him from it, issuing a warning. But he doesn't heed the warning yet again. God 
always makes a way out. He is faithful to warn us when we're walking in a way that we should not. It's up to us to heed the warning. And so we see he ignores the warnings. Number three, no accountability. His third step in backsliding is that he had absolutely no accountability in his life at all. He had no friends. We never see him going to a priest. There's no fellowship in Samson's life. He doesn't tell his parents. It tells us twice in this passage that he doesn't tell his parents about the things going on. He's completely alone in all of the things that he's doing. Now, what did God say? God said it is not good for a man to be alone. And that's part of the reason why. Because we need the fellowship and the the accountability. Now, you contrast that with people like Abraham and Joshua and David and Solomon and Paul. And what do you see? You see that they always had people around them. Abraham had 318 armed servants in his house that knew his business. We see that Joshua was a rallier of the troops. We see that David had 400 and then 600 men that were his mighty men. He had men so close to him that they were willing to die for him because they were so familiar with him, even with his sin. Even Solomon, who self-destructed later in life, was a man who depended upon the people that were around him. And certainly, when you read the countless names of those that were in ministry with the Apostle Paul, you realize how important it is to have people that are close to you, that know you, that are a part of your life in this faith. Satan's strategy as he seeks to destroy a person is very simple. Two easy steps. Number one, segregate them. And then number two, go for the jugular. And if he can get someone on their own, where they think that they're special or they think they don't need other people, then it's just a matter of time before he ultimately knocks them down. I know I've shared this story, but it's that good. I'll share it again. Mike Ditka, who was that Super Bowl winning champion uh, coach for the Chicago Bears, and you still see him as a commentator on, uh, you know, sports for football and whatnot. Mike Ditka uh, tells from his own experience of his problem with a foul mouth. How early on in his life, every other word that would come out of his mouth was some kind of a curse word. But he hated that aspect about him, and he really wanted to stop. And so one year, as they began training for the year of football, he went into his uh, team, and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'll tell you what. I'm going to put a promise out to you that every time this year that I use a curse word, I'm going to donate $1,000 to charity. Every single time I use a curse word. Guess how much money Mike Ditka spent that year? Zero. And when asked about how that happened, he said these words, a little accountability goes a long way. And sometimes that's all it takes is to make yourself accountable to someone when you have a struggle or a tendency or to be close with someone that knows you and you know them and there's a trust. And sometimes that's all it takes to keep us free in the things that ultimately otherwise would destroy us. The fourth step, or back step, you could call it, for Samson and his slide down the hill is that he was a man who would always take honey from a carcass. After a year of being delivered, after having God supernaturally intervene and give him strength to slay the lion that would have slain him, he goes back into that same vineyard again to see if it would happen again, maybe. Or to see what became of that lion, or maybe even to remind himself of that battle, whatever it was, I don't know what it was. Georgia and I were in Rochester for Thanksgiving, and one of our uh, favorite things to do, because we are very exciting people, is to go to the bookstore and drink coffee and read books. Because yes, I know, we live on the edge, you know. 
But we were sitting there and we, you know, didn't have our kids with us so we could relax. And both of us picked out a couple of books and we sat in the big, comfy, dirty chairs. And we started reading. And one of the books I was reading was a book on how to survive out in the wild. You know, that's just kind of a real man book. And so I was looking at it and one of the sections in the book was what to do if you encounter different types of wild animals while you're out in the wilderness. And so they had a section on the bear. What do you do if you see a bear, you know, just lay on the ground and play dead and all these different things. And then it came to the section where it says, if you encounter a wild cat, you know, a mountain lion, a jaguar, you know, a a lion or anything else, what do you do if you encounter one of those? And it was the shortest section of all the rest. You know what it said? It said that if you encounter a wild cat in the wilderness, you will most likely not survive. (laughs) <laughs> and then it moved on to the next animal. And I thought, wow, that's real hopeful. You know, you're walking out there and you, you see one of the things, you say, okay, I guess this is it. It's all over. But what you realize when you consider that is how miraculous it was that the Spirit of God was able to deliver Samson from that lion that met him in the wilderness. That any other man in most circumstances would have been mauled to death and that would have been it. But God gave him a great mercy. When you think about some of the things that we've been set free from, I don't know about you, but I know for myself, when I consider the things that I was bound up in, chained to, at the time that God saved my life, those same things destroy people every day in this world. There are people whose lives are absolutely shipwrecked because of sins that I was set free from. And only the Spirit of God can deliver us from some of the things He does. Some of us were addicted to drugs. Some of us had alcohol problems that were out of control that no 12-step program will ever fully be able to heal. Sexual addictions, people that struggle with rage or theft or greed or a lifestyle that has them so bound in chains that there's no way that they're going to be set free from it. But yet by the power of God's Spirit, you can be free. And God has set many of us free. Now how foolish would it be, having been set free from those things, to want to go back into that world, into that place, just to see what became of it. Yeah, I I know I used to be a raging alcoholic, but now I just want to see what would happen if I go back into that lifestyle, if the temptation is still there. I just want to see if it's there. Yeah, I I know I was set free from, from that addiction, those things that went into my eyes, but I just want to see how free I am. So I'm just going to look at a, a little bit of it because there's some sweetness in it. That There's a little bit of honey that I can extract from maybe watching Movies that have that kind of stuff in it or or a a form of it or a portion of it, just a little bit. And I'll just get some of the sweetness out of it because there is some honey there. It's not the lion. It's not, hey, it's just, it's not a big deal. Do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand what Samson is doing here? He's going to something that's unclean, a carcass, to find sweetness in it. And that's a step in backsliding for Samson and it is for us. When we go to the things that we've been set free from, seeking just a little bit of sweetness, we're in a very dangerous place. And we're being defiled because we're touching a dead thing, just like Samson did. And here's what happens. You know what happened? You get stung. That's what happened to Samson. There was a hive of bees, and he wanted the honey. But listen, you cannot take honey out of a beehive without getting stung. And that will always happen. When you go to the unclean thing to seek a little sweetness, you're always going to uh, feel that sting. So what unclean thing might you, even tonight, be going to to just get a little bit of honey out of? You're not going to go back to that. But there's some sweetness in it. There's something I just, listen, Samson shouldn't have been in the vineyard. 
He shouldn't have been touching dead things. We find him doing both for the sake of honey, and he disregards. And then he even takes it to his parents, and he doesn't tell them where the honey came from. He gives them some of the same exact thing. But you see that he's a man who's willing to take honey from a carcass. And then number five, Samson's step. And really this could be number one, but we see it fifth in our text, so we give it number five here, is that he had religion without relationship. Now we've already seen Samson in a vineyard, and we've seen Samson touching a carcass, but in verse 10 we see him throwing a banquet for these Philistine people that are now coming to his wedding along with his parents. Now, this word banquet gives the clear connotation that this was a drinking festival, like a bachelor party. I mean, it's part of the wedding thing, but there's alcohol there. We know that because every other time this word is used, it's used for the, uh, you know, the feast that Samson gave, the word in the Hebrew is the word mishteh. And where we see it is we see it with Laban when he got Jacob drunk to deceive him with Leah. We see it with Nabal, the husband of Abigail, when he got himself silly drunk and didn't even know that he was going to lose his life. We see it with Ahasuerus in the book of Esther when he made Vashti or asked Vashti to dance for the, the, you know, the lords of, of Persia and she refused. They were all drunk. We see it with Daniel in chapter 1 where it says that he refused the portion of the king's wine. That word wine in the Hebrew is mishta, same word. And we see it later on in Daniel when Belteshazzar threw a feast and everybody got drunk and he pulled the vessels of the Lord's house out to drink wine out of them. This is an alcoholic party and we see Samson throwing it. Here's what we see. We see him violating yet another form of this Nazarite vow. Here's a man who had religion. He had all the external trimmings and appearances of being a Nazarite separated unto God. But inwardly, he was completely separated and far away from the Lord. There's not one record in all of Samson's life until the very end where he has fellowship with God. He had all the external, but none of the internal. Now contrast that with other saints, people in the Bible. We see Enoch. It says that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. So intimate was his fellowship that it says that God took him. He was not because God, he walked with God. Abraham, a man of the altar, a man of prayer, a man of obedience, constantly at God's feet. We see Moses, a man who was constantly waiting upon God up on the mountain for 40 days and then another 40, constantly seeking him, hearing his voice, asking God, show me your glory. We see Joshua on his face before the Lord, his shoes off before the captain of the Lord's host. It says of Joshua that he departed not out of the tabernacle of God. He was a man who loved God's presence. We see David, a man who would sing and worship and pray and wait upon the God and seek his face. We read in the Psalms and we see the intimacy that David had. And on and on it goes. You go through the Bible and you see the people that were separated unto God and there was such a reality, such a, a, an intimacy, a depth, a desire for them to want to know God. My soul, it cries out to you, God. When will my heart appear before God? Oh Lord, I wait upon you all the day. You're the strength of my life. David would cry out. But yet we look at Samson and we see none of it. Not one reference ever where he would. And here's the application of it. It's the Christian who goes to church But inwardly, there's absolutely no relationship with God at all. The depth of their devotion and consecration is in their t-shirt, or in their bumper sticker, or in what they say, or where they attend on Sundays, or even Wednesdays. But inwardly, their heart has become far from God. Jesus, and knowing Him, is no longer the objective of the life. Rather, it's just to use Him and get what we can from following Him and using His name. And Samson, at some point, he removed himself from God's presence. And here's one of the scariest verses in the Bible. It's, it, it's comforted me so many times, but it scares the daylights out of me. 
It's Romans 11.29, and it says this. It says that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Here's what that means. God told Samson's parents, before he was even born, that he was going to be used to begin to deliver the Philistines, or the Israelites, out of the hand of the Philistines. And God doesn't ever go back on his word. And here's the scary thing as it applies to you and I. Is that God has a calling on our lives. He's written our names in his book. He's loved us with an everlasting love. And he has foreordained works that we should walk in them and be faithful. And God is going to do with our lives the things that he has set forth and purpose to do. And the scary thing about that is that you can divorce yourself from intimate fellowship with him and yet still experience his power using your life for good things, but yet you've been separated from that relationship. And that is scary. Because the measure of our devotion to him is never in the effectiveness of what we do for him, but rather it's in the relationship that we have with him. You can do things for God, you can be used of God, but yet inwardly you can be separated from God. And that's scary. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and meekness and gentleness and self-control. Now, none of those things have anything to do with winning people to Christ or slaying Philistines or doing anything for him. All of those things deal with the work of God in us as we walk with him in fellowship. And what we do for the Lord is supposed to be birthed out of what we have in the Lord, the relationship. But Samson didn't have that anymore. He had religion, but he didn't have a relationship with God. And if that's the case for any of us, then you're, you're in a backslidden state and you're on your way down the hill uh, as we see it here. So what are the effects? What happens in Samson's life because of his backsliding? Well, we pick up the text again in verse 11 and now we get to see what happens to Samson because of all of this. It says that it happened that when they saw him, that they brought 30 companions to be with him. So 30 Philistine friends now are assigned to Samson. We don't know if he didn't have enough friends in Israel to come to this feast, or maybe these guys were so concerned about what this man might do, and they didn't trust him, so we thought, well, let's bring 30 guys in here to maybe keep watch. And so then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you, and if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. Now here's where Samson begins in this conflict with the Philistines. Number one is that he causes problems for himself in society. He becomes, at the very onset of his interaction with these people, a menace to them. He begins posing riddles, goofing around, making bets, gambling, being more concerned with changes of clothes than liberation for his country or the salvation of souls or anything that God would be interested in. He's posing riddles, and he's making problems for himself, as we will see. Look at verse 15. It says, But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? 
Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, Look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? By the way, this is why we do pre-marriage counseling. (laughs) Now, she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted, and it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So part two of Samson's effects here, of his backsliding, is that now he's having problems in his marriage. So problems in society, now problems in his marriage, before the marriage is even fully consummated. A couple of pointers, I think. uh, Well, let's move on, and then we'll come back to the pointers. Verse 18, let's see what happens next. This is, so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, so it's down to the wire now, it's the last day, the last opportunity that they have to give the answer to the riddle before they lose the bet. And notice, it says they said, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. now Samson not only society problems not only marriage problems now he's in debt he owes 30 changes of clothing and the idea behind these clothing it was a wedding garment that he would owe them usually a person would have one it would be the equivalent of a tuxedo or of a prom dress or a wedding gown something to that regard a very expensive garment and now he owes 30 of these to these men Now, just to to, to look back again for a moment on Samson's marriage woes. I think if we could do marriage counseling with Samson based upon his experience here, he would give us a few pointers. Number one, he would say this. He would say, don't ever side with someone else against your spouse. That's just practical marriage advice. Don't ever side with someone else against your spouse. That's exactly what Samson's wife does. She sides with the sons of her people against him and seeks to extract something from him. Don't get involved in someone else's marriage business. And that's great advice for you and I. Whether it's your marriage or whether it's someone else's marriage and they're trying to bring you into it, listen, stay out of it. I've seen firsthand what happens when a healthy married couple intervenes or gets involved with an unhealthy married couple. And listen, health doesn't spread. Sickness spreads. That's always the way that it goes. The second thing Samson would tell us, he would say, beware of emotional manipulation. We see Samson's wife weeping on him, wearing him down with her emotions. And this works both ways. Women do this to men, and men do it to women. In other ways, they don't necessarily weep. But emotional manipulation will always birth resentment and break down the marriage bond. Beware of it. Number three, in a marriage, don't have secrets. The kingdom of God, I don't know if you know this, the kingdom of God operates on a strict disclosure policy. What that means is this, is that there are no secrets. In God's kingdom, there are no secrets. Jesus said it like this. He said, whatever you say in secret will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Whatever you do behind closed doors will be known of all. That's just the way it is in God's kingdom. Everything is in the light. That's why we're told to walk in the light. Now, if it's that way in the kingdom, how much more in a marriage? There should not be secrets between married couples. 
Samson and his wife should have been a united front in this. She should have known the answer and not told the people, but trusted that Samson and God would hold it together. But number four is don't marry an unbeliever. See, they're building on a totally different blueprint here. She's not allied with Samson spiritually. She is allied with her people spiritually, and so that's where her allegiance goes. And that's the way it always will be. When you marry an unbeliever, the marriage is doomed from the get-go because you're building it upon something that cannot sustain. And then finally, Samson's fifth and final word of advice, don't call your wife a heifer. (laughs) That one's free. The deeper thing behind all of this concerning Samson's marriage problems is this, and this applies maybe more perfectly to any of us here, is that the only way that your horizontal relationships can be healthy is if your vertical relationship is healthy. We have healthy relationships with one another when we're in right fellowship with God. When our fellowship with God isn't what it's supposed to be, the direct result of that is that our relationships with each other aren't what they're supposed to be. And that's without fail. And we see it with Samson here. Society problems, marriage problems. Now he's got money problems. And now it gets even worse. Look at verse 19. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon. It's about 12 miles south. Far enough that stories and words won't travel that quickly. And it says that he killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So now... He's got legal problems. So he has society problems, marriage problems, money problems. Now he's got legal problems, and it gets even worse. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. Now he's got emotional problems. He can't keep his rage in check. He's supposed to be under the influence of the Spirit of God. He's supposed to have self-control. The Spirit comes upon him over and over again, but he can't control his anger. We're going to see in the next chapter that he operates on the premise of do unto others worse than what they do unto you. And he can't control it. His emotions are out of whack. He's completely out of God's will, out of God's favor. And then it says, and and, and then in verse 20 it gets even worse. It says, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Now there's an adultery. Now his wife the one that he's supposed to marry, is given to someone else completely. Society problems, marriage problems, money problems, legal problems, emotional problems. Now he's got an adultery and a broken marriage. He's, what, 20, 25 years old? It's a sad state. Now he's got in-law problems. Look at 15 verse 1. Don't worry, we're only doing two verses here. It says, After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, Let me go into my wife into a room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please, take her instead. Now he's got in-law problems. Do you see where he's going? His whole life is, is falling apart in all of these things because he's backslidden and fallen away from the Lord. He let religion replace his relationship. He didn't deal with his flesh. He had unbridled lust. He failed to heed the warnings that God graciously gave him through his parents and through the lion. He's always taking honey from the unclean thing. And he's isolated and has no accountability. And it leads him to a place where at a young age, he has completely wrecked his life. 
It's upside down. And here's the application as we close our study tonight. Is that no matter who it is or when it is in any time in history, these are the ingredients and the outcomes of sliding away from the Lord. Now, they might not come in this order or in this exact form, but in some way, these things are always what happens. What does it say of Peter? Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired you, but I've prayed for you that when your faith is established, strengthen your brethren, when you're converted. And Peter said, Lord, I'm not going to, what are you talking about? I'll die for you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny that you ever even knew me. And Peter adamantly declared, he said, Lord, I will die for you before I deny you. And Peter meant it. But we see Peter a little bit later that night, and what does it say? It says that he followed Jesus afar off. He allowed there to be a distance between his following of Jesus. That, hey, hey, Lord, I'm still following you, but it's at a distance. I mean, the heat is on right now, and people are really watching, and, 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 and you're not the most popular thing in our society. And I, I just, you know, Lord, I'm still with you, but I'm, I'm over here. He followed afar off. Stage two? It says that Peter warmed himself at the enemy's fire. It was cold outside and he needed some heat. He needed some comfort. And so where did he get it? Amongst the enemies of the Lord. Number three, he was fellowshipping with outsiders. He was finding his place among them. And that's where it happened. You were with him. We saw you. No, no, I wasn't. I I wasn't with him. Your speech betrays you. You're a Galilean. You were with Jesus. No, I wasn't. I wasn't with Jesus. And then with an oath, the third time he cursed for emphasis. And he says, I wasn't with him. And then the cock crew. And he realized, oh my goodness. What happened? He followed at a distance. He warmed himself with the enemy's fire. He was hanging out in a place with people he shouldn't have been. And then he denied the Lord. You see, backsliding always will take you down. Always take you down. Maybe you see yourself in Samson. Or you see Samson in yourself. You think about your own life and you say, you know, There were times or there was a time when I was closer or the fire was hotter or or things were more intense between me and Jesus than they are right now. So what do we do? What's the remedy? We've seen the cause. We've seen the effect. How do you get back? How do I get back into that place where things are the way they're supposed to be with God? It's simple. Number one is that you turn your heart back to God. It always starts on the vertical axis, is get your heart right with him. It's been well said, it takes a passion to beat a passion. And so you become passionate for God again. What did Jesus say to the church in Ephesus there in Revelation chapter 2, when he was correcting them? He said, look, all of your religious things are the way they're supposed to be. Your doctrine, your works, your labor, you test those that say they are apostles and aren't. You've done all of these things, but I have this one thing against you, Jesus said. You've left your first love. It's become about everything external, and you've left off the internal, the important thing, our relationship. How is this doing, Jesus was asking them. And then he gave them counsel. He said, repent and redo. Remember, repent and redo. Remember your first love. Then repent, turn back to me, and redo the things that you did at the beginning. Listen, if you could think of a day in your life When you love Jesus or you are more on fire for him than you are right now, you are backslidden. So what do you do? Give yourself back to God. Fill yourself with his influence. Do what you did at the beginning when you couldn't get enough of the word. When there wasn't enough ability in your mind to get the Bible studies in or to spend the time worshiping or enough hours in the day to spend praying and seeking his face. Do it again. 
Fill yourself so much with his truth, his testimonies, his counsels, that it comes out, it seeps out of your dreams. That you lay your head on the pillow at night and God, he speaks to you there. What you read the night before is digested by the morning and then it's applied to your life for that day. He's leading your steps as you go throughout and he's giving you wisdom. He's giving you understanding. He's, he, he's giving you insight into what's going on. He's speaking to you for your life. How does it happen? Give yourself to God. Fill yourself with him again. Do like David and give the follow the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your strength. Turn back to the Lord. Number two is this. Leave the lion in the vineyard. Every single one of us has things that we've been delivered from. There are carcasses that we have left behind of things that almost destroyed us. Leave them there. Don't go back and say, well, I can flirt with this just a little. Yeah, I used to be in that lifestyle, and now it's almost nostalgic. You know, it's just a, it, it's just a little bit, a little taste, a little flirting. Don't do it. Yeah, I, I used to be such a womanizer back in the day. And, and I would never do it again, but sometimes I like to turn on the charm just to see if I still have it. Just to see if I can still schmooze, you know, get someone to, to like me a little bit. It's just a little flirting, but it would never go to where it was again. Listen, leave the carcass in the wilderness. If God has set you free from something, don't touch it. Stay away from it. Because it just takes a little honey, and you get stung. And those things that grabbed you the first time will take you down and destroy you the second time. And the number three, and finally, and then we're done, is this. How do we return? Listen, stay in the furnace. See, Samson didn't like the preparation. He didn't want to go through the pain or the, the darkness, I'll call it. Not darkness spiritually, but just not knowing what was going to happen in his future. He didn't want to go through that. No, I want it now, Lord. What is your calling, your plan for my life? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do? What did you make me for? Lord, I don't want to go through 20 years like Abraham did. I don't want to go through 13 years in the prison system of Egypt. Lord, just tell me now, I'm different than everyone else. I have gifts. I have ability. Don't do it. Say, God, thy will be done. Do in my life what you will. And as long as it's going to take, Lord, for you to put in me what you need to put in me or take out of me what you need to take out of me, Lord, do it. Because it's so much more to me that my relationship with you stay right and that I'm able to handle what it is that you've given for me later on. And so let me now experience all that you have for me. I'll close with this uh, quote, and I don't know who said it, but it's good. It says, it is a miserable thing to be a backslider. Of all unhappy things that can befall a man, I suppose backsliding is the worst. A stranded ship, a broken winged eagle, a garden overrun with weeds, a harp without strings, a church in ruins. All these are sad sights, but a backslider is a sadder sight still. That true grace shall never be extinguished, and true union with Christ shall never be broken off. I feel no doubt. But I do believe that a a man may fall away so far that he shall lose sight of his own grace and despair of his own salvation. And if this is not hell, it is certainly the next thing to it. A wounded conscience, a mind sick of itself, a memory full of self-reproach, a heart pierced through with the Lord's arrows, a spirit broken with a load of inward accusation, all this is a taste of hell. It is hell on earth. The worship team can come. Here's the good news. That no matter how many steps you may have taken away from the Lord, where you find yourself here tonight, 
Jesus tells us that it only takes one step back towards God to have him meet you with his full embrace, forgiveness, and acceptance. Maybe tonight you sit here and you hear Samson's story and you realize, you know what, I'm Samson. Maybe I'm not in such a place where I've seen all of the effects or all of the outcomes or everything that's happened, but I'm Samson. In my heart, I know I'm Samson. Listen, God wants to meet you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to take you back. He wants to put a passion in your heart. He doesn't tell us these things if it isn't in his mind and in his will to reverse what we see happening in our lives. It could very well be that God brought you here tonight to revive and refresh and renew you. We're going to sing this song, and maybe you just want to come. No one's going to embarrass you or interrupt you or touch you or anything. And you wouldn't want to come. You want to say, God, I hear you tonight. I hear what you're saying to me. And Lord, I need to come back to you. I need to be in your presence, your embrace. I invite you, just as the song is coming, come, kneel at the front of the church. Come to God and say, God, fill me again. Use me again. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't even know Jesus. But tonight, you know. You realize, God, you're real. Your truth is real. Your word is real. Your kingdom is real. Your ways are right. You want to come. Come forward. Give yourself to God. That's why we're here. What else do we have? So the worship team will come, and you're welcome to to come and, and, and meet with God tonight.